Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. My name is Brett Freeman. I'm the publisher and owner of a media company in the Hudson Valley, New York. I launched this podcast to highlight and discuss topics without fear of cancellation by today's cancel culture. Well, at Hudson Valley Uncensored, we won't be afraid. My intention is to stay true to each of you, true to myself, and to interview people who will also be true to our audience. Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. As a middle-aged man in my 40s, I can say sadly that we as human beings live lives full of cynicism. And in many ways, we are broken, full of anxiety and worry. But every once in a while, we get a glimpse of beauty. I'm not talking about sexuality. I'm talking about the feeling of awe that we may feel for an artistic masterpiece, whether it's music, a film, a book, or art on a canvas that brings tears to our eyes or a lump in our throat. Sometimes we may experience that feeling of awe from a sunset or staring at the stars or some other solitary moment out in nature, or perhaps during a shared human experience. As families, we may bicker from time to time, but it's that one moment of laughter, that one moment when we look into each other's eyes with full and true understanding, a moment you want to repeat or hold on to forever and makes you realize, oh yeah, this is why I love these people. Sometimes this moment of awe may be experienced amid our greatest heartbreaks when our painful loss reveals the extent of our love. Most importantly, these glimpses of beauty and these fleeting moments of awe are filled with goodness. There's nothing bad, nefarious, or evil about them. I'm fairly confident that all human beings experience these fleeting moments from time to time. I call these moments fleeting because, of course, we can't experience these moments forever as we have work, chores, and other mundane and difficult aspects of life that we can't escape. The reason that I go to church and the reason I pray to Jesus is because it's my own glimpse of beauty, my own fleeting moment of awe. Not everything can be explained or justified. Some things in life are experienced by living it out and the goodness that comes out of it can't be summed up and articulated over a single conversation. I want to believe that there's something greater in life. I want to believe that there's a totally benevolent higher power. I have an innate yearning for transcendence. I have a yearning for a savior. As imperfect as my life is, the one entity that has brought a level of this feeling into my life is Jesus. I also recognize that there are some people who have opened the Bible, who have been to church, and who have learned about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, yet they're just not, quote-unquote, feeling it. Fellow Christians have told me that once the Holy Spirit enters you, it doesn't leave, whether or not you, quote-unquote, feel it. But if I'm going to bear my soul to you, I have to concede that I don't feel the Holy Spirit all the time, or most of the time, or even a lot of the time. Rather, on occasion, I get moments of clarity where it all just makes sense. At those moments, I experience feelings of spirituality and transcendence. Sadly, much of the time, I have my doubts and I lack faith. And during those times, I need to rely on my intellectual understanding of it all which is an imperfect substitute. When I must rely on my intellect, 
I have a simple test for whether it brings me closer to the truth. There are things of the flesh that I desire that make me feel less than wholesome afterwards. For example, I enjoy going to casinos, but I've never left a casino feeling as if I'm a better person for it. I enjoy ogling a pretty woman, but looking in her direction only frustrates me and makes me feel guilty as I'm married and I have children. On the other hand, I desire to go to church. It's not something I do out of obligation. I feel called to it. I look forward to it, much like things of the flesh. However, unlike things of the flesh, when I leave church and the feeling is gone, I remain grateful for that experience. It brings me closer to my wife and kids. We often hold hands when we worship. We are a better family for it. And my life is healthier for it. This is how I know from an intellectual standpoint, whether it's something that God wants me to do in my life or whether it's stemming from gluttony or another sinful aspect of my nature. This is only a small glimpse of my thoughts on faith, but faith has become a big part of my life. Faith is a fascinating topic and one that I will explore in depth for this episode. Today, I interview the pastor of Lakeview Community Church in Carmel, New York, Brian McIntyre. Pastor Brian is one of my spiritual and intellectual mentors. He is the pastor at the church I call home and the church that has been my home from the moment I became a Christian. Pastor Brian grew up in Mayapak, New York. After graduating from Messiah College in 1991 with a bachelor's degree in business administration, he had no intention of being in full-time ministry, but agreed to help out with a youth group at his home church. That introduction to ministry led to a passion to invest deeply in the lives of teenagers, something his future wife, Diane, shared, who he met at a Youth for Christ banquet. Brian served as the youth minister at First Baptist Church of Brewster from 1995 to 1999, and then attended Alliance Theological Seminary in Nyack, where he graduated with a master's degree of divinity in 2002. From there, he connected with a Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination and started working on Lakeview Community Church with their backing and support. Brian and Diane have four wonderful children, and they live in Carmel. Welcome, Pastor Brian. Hey, Brett. Thank you for the welcome. It's great to be here with you. I'm really excited for that uh, very nice introduction and look forward to our conversation. So, Pastor, the first question I want to ask is, um, what made you decide to plant your own church instead of finding a job as a pastor at an existing congregation? Do some pastors get the entrepreneurial bug? And what led you to choose the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination? There's a lot to that question. And first of all, I would say that uh, it was something that uh, at the core level, it felt that this was something we were called to do, something we had to do. And that came after a few years of really just uh, discerning that, getting counsel, getting training, and all that. You know, as you mentioned in the introduction, that I was a business major. And small business entrepreneurship was actually one of my main focuses, one of my main passions. This, in a way, is, was a very entrepreneurial endeavor that uh, was able to kind of take two passions and form them together. So having said that, the process of starting a church is not an easy one. It definitely ranks as the most challenging endeavor that I've been through. We're 18, 19 years into it at this point, so it's a little bit past that birthing stage, but very challenging, but lots of really amazing opportunities along the way. 
and kind of to get to the heart of why, you know, we were just really looking for a newer, fresher expression of how to practice the Christian faith, and one that we were hoping would connect with uh, people in our lives that we long to um, share our faith with. That was really what led to it. And um, the family of churches we're a part of, uh, Christian Missionary Alliance, you know, I went to their seminary and got to know them and really just loved what they were about. I also knew that uh, I had a lot of passion, but I didn't have a lot of training. And uh, the CMA provided a lot of coaching, a lot of training, a lot of mentoring along the way. And so uh, I knew we needed that. So I went to them and thank God they took me through the battery of tests, assessments and all kinds of things to find out, you know, do you have the basic skill sets and just um, abilities for planting a church? On the other side of that, they affirmed that. And it's been a really, really good experience partnering with them. So at the beginning of your answer, you said we are you talking about you and Diane and there was a decision for both of you? Yeah, my wife Diane and I, for sure. Yeah, it's definitely something um, that uh, impacted our entire family. And um, ministry does not fall into a very well-defined boundaries of a nine-to-five kind of job. And for us, it meant, um, actually, we were living in New Fairfield at the time in Connecticut, right over the borderline, where the uh, cost of living is as you know, Brett, a bit cheaper, taxes are a bit lower. And we moved from Connecticut back into New York, where the taxes are higher, the cost of living is a lot higher. And so that was a that was definitely a family decision. And that was connected to starting the church? Exactly. The, okay. That was the impetus for the move. And in terms of CNMA, Christian and Missionary Alliance, how does that differentiate itself from different Christian denominations? The distinctiveness of the Christian Missionary Alliance, um, which we actually don't put a lot of emphasis on, they are sort of a behind-the-scenes family that gives a lot of support to me as a pastor and undergirds our passions for ministry. We connect with them and other like-minded churches around the country and around the world. We have a district that it's called the Metropolitan District. It's uh, about 130 churches, I think, that are in the New York area up to Putnam County. We're actually about as far north as you can get. And it goes all the way through New York City down to the end of uh, New Jersey. And just great support, training, a lot of good friendships that I've made along the way. And what I love is just the accountability piece. So that uh, if I'm working through something, if I'm struggling through a conflict or whatever, I can pick up the phone and I can call some guys and they can just come alongside and help. And as well as if the day ever comes where I go out of bounds in whatever way, those guys are going to be around and they'll jump in. So it's a safeguard in that way. Overall, though, they're kind of what you would call a big tent um, Protestant denomination, I guess you would say. And so they major on the majors and they minor on the minors. Uh, There's been times in my life and my upbringing where it felt like, you know, we majored on the majors and we, we said we minor on the minors, but everything was a major issue, it seemed like. And so that was a little bit exhausting and a little bit confusing to me in my faith developments. So when I connected with the CMA, that was something that was like a breath of fresh air. Can you explain what do you mean by majoring in the majors? A lot of it is like theological distinctives, uh, doctrinal distinctives. You know, we are this way, but not that way. To bring the conversation back, if you were to go back a couple of generations ago where the United States, by and large, was what you would call a church culture which meant that basically the majority of people went to either a church or a synagogue or, you know, wherever they were very religiously involved. 
As a matter of fact, the church where I grew up, we had a, you know, there was a bell and there was a day when they would ring the bell and the town would shut down in the middle of the day and people would just make their way to church. It was the call. And so in that day, the way that um, churches differentiated themselves oftentimes with theological distinctives. And so the idea would be that if you believe in infant baptism, we believe in baptism only after a profession of faith. You know, you believe in this expression of this being done this way, you know, cutting kind of very uh, fine hairs of differentiation. And you see that a lot of times within, you know, the difference between, you know, say a, uh, a Methodist church and a Presbyterian church or a Lutheran church or a Baptist church. And what was really nice about uh, just for a second to get into the history of the CMA, um, I think it's one of the only denominations that is sort of the reverse. It actually started with people from all different denominations coming together just for, for two reasons, to seek God uh, in a deeper work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, as well as to fulfill the uh, what's called the Great Commission of taking the gospel message to the ends of the earth. And so it was only several generations after that started that, um, you know, the people who were kind of running things basically said, hey, like it or not, we are a denomination. Let's just put the right label on it so we can make it official. Didn't it focus at the beginning? Tell me if I'm wrong in terms of the history of it, but wasn't there some sort of focus on making sure that it was integrated in terms of, you know, racially integrated? The story for how it all started, I guess, would be uh, the founder, his name is A.B. Simpson, and he was the minister at a prestigious Presbyterian church in New York City. I cannot remember the name of the church, but I believe it's still there. You know, this was back in the day when the newspaper would actually print on Monday the Sunday sermon of the churches. He had a very uh, posh position there, and there were Italian immigrants at the time who wanted to come to church. And um, as I understand it, there were sections of the church that different people actually used to buy their seat. You know, so they would purchase a pew and it was kind of reserved for them alone. And there were some Italian immigrants who wanted to come in, but the people wouldn't give up their seats. And so uh, A.B. Simpson put out some chairs in the back of the building for them to come in and to be welcome at the church. And they said, we don't want those people in here. That was probably the impetus. I don't recall the specifics of the story, but that was what motivated him to leave there and said that we want to start a church, you know, and a movement that would welcome people, not keep them out. So tell us about the evolution of Lakeview Community Church. I believe it started in a living room and evolved into a point today where the congregation owns two large church buildings. So tell us about this journey. Also, as a new Christian myself, I've always found it remarkable how each step of the way has involved prayer and a bit of faith. If you could describe that to our audience, that would be great. Um, so we, yeah, we started out in a living room, in our living room, actually, in New Fairfield before we moved back here to Carmel. And just to back up a little bit, my wife grew up here in Carmel. I grew up in Mayapak, one town over. We felt that Carmel was the place we wanted to, we needed to start this church. And so that's what motivated us to move back here. But before then, we were just meeting in our um, living room. We had a lot of heart, a lot of passion, but we had no idea how we were going to actually get people you know, and what the process was going to look like, how we were going to build this. So we went through several stages of development, I guess you would say, from meeting in a living room to using an annex room at the uh, the local Baptist church. Uh, we met in the VFW hall here in town for, gosh, probably a couple of years, you know, and we would come in Sunday mornings and you could still smell the uh, 
beer bottles from the night before. And then we, um, we started at Carmel High School in Casey Hall, and that became our home base in terms of a, a Sunday morning meeting place for several years, probably 16, 17 years, which worked out really well. And our goal was always to say that the church is about the people, not the place. And since we didn't own a physical building, it gave us the opportunity to just focus in our energy and our focus on people and building up the community. And so that is our strongest point of our church is the people, the relationships, the fact that people don't just come to church to check off a box and say, yeah, I went to a service, but it's more of like belonging to people who you call friends and even for some people, family. So it's been neat for me to see over the years how people have met at church, that there's been marriages and that, you know, when people get together during holidays, they're inviting their friends from church, their relationships from church over for that, for birthdays, for significant events in their lives. And so that's always been our kind of the drum that we beat. At one point, there was a movie theater too, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We had a little bit of time at the Carmel Movie Theater. Yeah, that was unexpected. The high school had to close down for the summer. We had two weeks notice. And so we scrambled to find a place to meet. And we survived in the movie theater for a, uh, for a few months, you know, the sticky floors and the smell of popcorn. So that was, yeah, it was always an adventure, you know, and very risky. There were very many seasons where we weren't sure how long this was going to last. Statistics show that church plants, which is what the, the name for what we were doing, planting a church, that nine out of 10 of them failed. So there were several seasons where we were had like, you know, okay, we've got about two months of a runway, but if things don't change, then we're not quite sure we can keep on doing this. But that's just part of the journey and part of kind of the risk taking involved. And, um, and it's just been great to see, uh, you know, what's happened since then. So now you have an old, I think, Baptist church in Kent as one of the buildings. And you have the old Dills building in Carmel. That's sort of the site for the future uh, congregation. Yeah. So um, back when we first started meeting in Carmel High School, and we had a pretty good response, a good turnout. And people started asking, hey, where are we going to meet long term? Are we going to get our own place? And I just figured, let me just make some phone calls, knock on some doors and it was at that time when, uh, for those of your listeners who are, you know, long time around the Putnam County area, Dill's Best was a small chain of uh, lumberyards and uh, small, you know, kind of hardware type of place. And they were just going out of business. Home Depot had opened up a couple of years before and they were closing up shop. And I saw the for sale sign out there on his property. And I thought, what a great location. And I knew that the Dill family to be very community oriented. So I figured I'm going to call this Mr. Dill guy who I had never met before, introduce myself and see if there's anything we can figure out here. So I did that and, you know, introduced myself and, you know, I said, Hey, I see you have a place for sale and we're looking for a place. Is there anything we could figure out? And I believe his response was, um, well, you know, it's on the market for 2.5 million. So if you have that, then I'd love to talk. And I said, well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time and I'll talk to you later. But, uh, you know, I was kind of, a bit younger at the time and, you know, it didn't back off too easily. So I just decided I'm going to call him a few more times. So, you know, a few months went by. I didn't, I didn't see anything happening there. So I called him back once. I called him back a couple times after that, you know, maybe up to maybe nine months after that. And, you know, at that time, his focus was on selling his property. So uh, we just left it. 
and forgot about it and just continued to uh, to work out of the high school and focus on building our um, community and never really thought about it much after that. So fast track about seven years later, out of the blue one afternoon, I think it was in November, if I recall, got a phone call from Mr. Dillon. He said, uh, you know, Pastor Brian, I said, yes. He said, I understand you're still meeting in the high school and you've yet to find a permanent facility. But is that true? And I said, yes, it is. And he said, okay, my wife and I would like to meet with you. And I said, okay, I don't know what this is about. But um, my wife, Diane, and I sat down with them at a diner. And he basically said, you know, well, listen, we've done well for ourselves. We don't need the money, but we would like to get this real estate property off of our portfolio, basically to not leave a mess for, you know, his children, uh, you know, if they were to go on too long and kind of just thinking about uh, his own family. And so we said, to make a long story short, are you still interested in our facility? And we said, yeah, I think so. But what does that mean? And so we came to find out it took a while, but um, they actually donated the uh, facility and there's about an eight acre parcel of property connected to it. So that was a total surprise, not something we ever would have planned, you know, or expected. And so that was actually probably, I think we're going on like seven years that we've owned that facility. You know, at that time, we didn't want to then change the messaging, you know, the drum that we had beat up to that time um, at our church, which is that it's about the people, not the place. And then say, okay, guys, you know, it's just kidding. Now it's about the place and we need to raise all this money to get in here. So we took our time with that. And, you know, it's been a while. We are right about done now, actually. Probably the next couple of weeks will finally be finished. We're really excited to see how that allows us to uh, just expand and provide things, not only for our church, but for the community around us. And meanwhile, the, the congregation also got gifted a second building. So that's where the congregation has been meeting now for, for yeah. I guess, a few years. Yeah. Yeah. Again, one of these things that uh, never would have expected. I was uh, introduced to a pastor of the, it was called the Second Kent Baptist Church. And um, their congregation had diminished to the point where, you know, they were looking to close their doors. And the pastor said, look, our property's not for sale. Our only interest is that, that this place continues to be a house of worship, you know, a Christian house of worship. You know, he says, would you guys take this church building. And honestly, Brad, I think you probably know the story at the time. My first inclination was no, <laughs> because uh, maintaining two buildings is a lot of work. And we were in the middle of, you know, kind of trying to figure things out for our own facility. You know, what we did is our elder board, our leadership board, we just, uh, you know, took about a week and we fasted and prayed and really wrestled through that decision. We came out of it, you know, saying, okay, we're going to take this gift but we weren't sure whether we were actually wanting to move into a very traditional building with pews and off the beaten trail a bit. At the same time, though, you know, Brett, you were part of the church at the time. We were running out of space at the high school. We had grown to the point where it was difficult for us to fit people in at Casey Hall. And so, uh, you know, by default, because of that, we did end up having to uh, use the place. And uh, we did a about two weeks worth of renovations there. We took out the pews, we replaced them with uh, chairs. We painted it a more modern color, gave it a little bit of update. And um, it's actually been working out surprisingly well. It's been a real blessing. Now, I know that taking out the pews was really one of the biggest requirements that you had moving into that. So explain a little bit why you were adamant about getting rid of the pews. You know, overall, our expression of uh, church is much more contemporary where pews are much more of a traditional kind of, um, 
you know, what you would expect. We wanted the space to as much as possible reflect who we were. You know, we're much more casual. And so, yeah, that little bit of change made a pretty significant difference in the experience people had when they just walked into the building and walked into the worship space. I keep hearing news stories about congregations throughout the United States getting smaller and dying. Why have you experienced the opposite? Why has Lakeview experienced the opposite? Why are there so many families with young children at Lakeview? And I guess, what is Lakeview's formula for growth? Oh, good question. I don't know. There was an answer, a cut and dry answer to that. I think, um, you know, everyone would be uh, chasing after it and I'd be able to write a book. (laughs) But I don't think there is. I think, uh, you know, every church has a specific call and there's things that you can do as a church and there's things that you can't do. And for the most part, I think it's understanding who you are. Why are you here as a church? What has God called this church to do as an expression of his heart for this local community? And then do that well, as well as possible. And the results are, you know, obviously out of our hands. Life groups have become a central component of Lakeview Community Church. Uh, I guess explain the purpose of life groups, what they are, and why they have become so essential. From the start of them, we really wanted to, um, you know, make relationships at the core of who we are and what we do. And not just like, you know, plugging people into classes and just feeding them content, but learning what does it look like to do life together? And so that's been a a central focus to our church from day one. I always say we built the church on a Bible, Bible in one hand and a cup of coffee in the other. So even on a Sunday morning, our experience pre-COVID included, you know, a coffee bar with uh, bagels and rolls and a bit of a disarming kind of connection. And the idea is that coffee is sort of the, um, the beverage of conversation, you know, and, and the more conversations that can happen, the more people can open up about what's going on in their lives, about the challenges they're going through, the difference that God makes in that. And so that has been sort of the pattern for how we try to do everything. And our life groups are basically, we have um, just uh, different places where people meet in small groups of about six To 10 people, they use a um, springboard off of the Sunday sermon, the message that I speak on Sunday, and uh, they meet together. They kind of wrestle with what they've heard. Hey, did you have any questions about that? What didn't make sense to you? How do we actually live this out in life from not just on Sunday, but, but every other day of the week? And then there's also opportunities to just do life together. You know, hey, you know, I've got a challenge here. Can you guys help? And the group will come alongside. They'll pray for each other. They'll provide meals if that's what's needed. And uh, it's just a great way of building relationships and doing life together. Lakeview emphasizes that you are looking for people to come as they are. What do you mean by that? And why is that important? The idea behind that is that stepping into a church for many people, you know, I've had the opportunity of welcoming a lot of new people who come in and knowing that that first step into a church is sort of like walking into a foreign country. You don't know what it's going to be like, what to expect, everything from how am I supposed to dress or when am I supposed to stand, when am I supposed to sit, can for many people create a lot of stress, a lot of even anxiety and keep people away. So there is in a lot of uh, people's Um, minds and expectations about church is that I have to come with the answers already, or I have to come having figured this out or whatever. And um, the idea is 
let's all just come as we are. And, uh, you know, God meets us where we are and he moves us step by step closer to where he wants us to be. That's been the process is just letting people kind of off the hook to say, you know, I've got to have some kind of checklist figured out before I come into church. Now, with every major decision that Lakeview has made as a church, prayer has been an essential element in determining our direction. Why is prayer so important? You know, it kind of just gets to the heart, uh, Brett, of how what we're doing, I guess, would be different than just, you know, making just some business decisions and looking at it from just a spreadsheet analysis and all of that, that we kind of just have this understanding that God has a plan, you know, that God has put us here for a purpose, both corporately and people individually, you know, there's a plan that God has. And part of how we tap into that, so we understand and, you know, can be led by him is, is through that process of prayer, you know, recognizing that, uh, you know, we fully engage in decision-making processes. We don't turn off our brains. You know, I'm one who's, uh, you know, you know me, I'm a pretty deep thinker. So I definitely like to fully engage in that, but not just limit it to that and just leave space to hear from God is what we call it. And, uh, you know, to allow for him to speak into those situations in whatever way, you know, whether it's just hearing from a person who has just something that they bring to it, or uh, just looking at an opportunity that we wouldn't have thought of, you know, and all these things kind of have just been a, a big part of how we've done church from day one. How do you know that God has spoken to you? I don't, but I come with the understanding that God is always speaking. And, uh, you know, when I go out for a run, which I do most days, I'm trying to just open up my heart to hear from him. I try to just immerse myself in the word of God so that uh, my heart is just uh, filled with his words, you know, and his message to me. And I just kind of take the pressure off, you know, just um, understanding, hey, where is it? Where are there maybe some checks if there's some kind of selfishness in me that may be getting in the way and that's motivating my decisions. You know, I try to discern that. Try to stay connected to other people. Connected to community is a big part of it. I think, you know, the quote unquote, the voice of God, you know, the still small voice of God is, it is discerned in community, not just, you know, going alone in a retreat by ourselves, but being connected to what the Bible calls the body of Christ, which is his people, you know, gather church. So you're saying exercise is definitely a spiritual experience for you? Well, I try not to create uh, distinctions in any area of my life from, you know, this is a secular area and this is a sacred area. I come with the understanding that every part of life is sacred. And so that applies to going to the grocery store and checking out groceries, uh, cooking a meal for my family. The few times when I do, because most of the time my wife does that. But all of life is, uh, you know, kind of lived under that understanding that this is all God's world. For me, exercise is a great way for me to process, for me to pray. Um, I do a lot of thinking and, you know, wrestle through decisions that I have to make. And Now, you've emphasized your own imperfections and shortcomings as a person during your sermons. Why is that important for a pastor in particular to do that? You know, one of the things that I've heard about myself is that the person who uh, is speaking up on the pulpit on Sundays is there's not a lot of difference, you know, between what you see on Sunday and what you see on Monday. I kind of, I don't do a good job of being anyone except for Brian, you know what I mean? And, and I am the way I am, you know, but Brett, even on a, on a deeper level than that, that kind of gets to the heart of what the gospel 
is all about. You know, the core message of the Christian faith is a message of grace. It's not about how good we are and how much we do. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's about how good God is in everything he's done, specifically through sending his son Jesus for us. And so that really, that frees us to be real, to not have to kind of present myself as I'm the guy who's got this all figured out and put on some kind of guise like that, because I'm still a person in process, just like every one of us. You know, what's fascinating to me is that it's oftentimes in those moments where I can kind of open up a little bit of those areas in my life, that those are areas where I, you know, I get a lot of feedback afterwards and say, thank you. I thought I was the only one. And the fact that uh, even my pastor is wrestling through this gives me hope. And so authenticity is an important part of, you know, my core value system in terms of how ministry works. So is that what God was telling us when he said, I am who I am also? Wow, that's a deep question. That one might take some time to uh, to process and think through. But um, I found it interesting that you know you would said I am who I am, and actually I'm, I've been watching the series The Chosen, and at one point one of the apostles sort of is talking to Jesus, kind of asking him and and sort of asking you know are you alluding to the fact that you're and Jesus didn't let him finish the sentence. Questions. Jesus said, "I am who I am." Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And so, you know, I just think there's something kind of profound in me. I think maybe God just wants some authenticity for all of us, perhaps. Yeah, that's a good insight. You recently pleaded with members of the congregation to come back to church. Why is that important? And what has been the biggest challenge as a church during COVID? And the second part of this question, because I think it's related, is that you've been—I don't know if "critical" is the right word, but you're not in love with TV pastors. So why is that? Why is it so important to be physically present with one another and not just watch church on TV? All right. So there's two parts of that question. Let me answer the first part first. And that was definitely probably got me in a little bit of trouble and probably rightly so. And so I think if I can remember how that went is not so much that I want people to come back, but as soon as they are ready to come back, to do so. And so the intention was that, you know, hey, if you've got reasons why you're not back and you're watching the streaming service live, then that's great. We're happy to have the opportunity through technology to provide that. And isn't that great for the time being? My concern was just that and continues as a whole, you know, and not just me. I think this is the concern of every pastor is, uh, is it getting to the point where people are substituting church and, you know, kind of reducing it to watching uh, an hour on a TV screen without participating in what I would call the body life, you know? And so for me, I say for Lakeview at church, uh, our church being so relationally oriented, the people are the best part, you know? And so when, uh, when 60% of the people aren't there, it creates a different vibe on a Sunday morning. You know, there's not that same atmosphere there. And in addition to that, it's more of like, how does a church work? And it is a body. And so that means there is some kind of connection. There's this interaction. There's people doing different things, uh, serving in different ways. You know, throughout this COVID time, that has gotten reduced. And we just don't want to turn that into a normal. For me, it's more of just recognizing that there are things you do during difficult times, but the reset is uh, that there's something about gathering together, um, that it's a gift. 
and not an obligation. And that's something that really has um, has come to the forefront over COVID is uh, even my kids and many kids, you know, I want to go back to school, <laughs> you know, whereas a, a year and a half ago, that wouldn't have been the default response. But when you miss it, you see how much community matters and how much that connection matters. And that's true because church is not just about hearing a message and singing some songs. It's about being a part of a uh, community that's connected together. In the past, you've actually, before COVID, you talked about how you don't want people just coming to be entertained and be part of an audience, that you do want some sort of participation, you know, whether, you know, it's volunteering during the service and how there's sort of an important element of that as well. Yeah, so that's part of what we would call our growth strategy or our discipleship strategy is recognizing that church isn't a spectator sport. And uh, in the Bible, it talks about um, each person has been given a unique gift by God for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. So uh, using that, there are just ways that God grows us and does a work in us by serving. And there's so many different ways to do that. But uh, yeah, we want people to be involved, just not for the sake of just keeping busy, but because that's a part of how we grow. Now, a common theme in your sermons is that as human beings, we're wired to worship something in our lives. Could be money, could be power, could be our jobs, it could be even you know our own families. What is it about human beings that gives us this desire to worship, and why is it important to make God number one? You know, I think that's something that God has built into our DNA because not the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, when the creation account, it talks about man and woman being created in the image and likeness of God. And so there's something to that that is woven into the fabric of who we are, I believe. And it kind of plays out just as you look at life and at our world in general. And this is definitely nothing at all original to me. I think this would go back all the way to Augustine that says that there's like a, uh, a God-shaped hole in our hearts and that uh, we try to fill that hole with so many different things that we look to, to say, this is going to satisfy me, this is going to fill me, this is going to complete me. And the idea is that uh, that hole is meant to be filled with our Creator, Redeemer, with Jesus. And if we don't fill it with Him, it will be filled with something else. You know, it could be, you know, not bad things, but it could be good things uh, made into ultimate things, you know, and when it elevates too high, the Bible term is idolatry. It turns into an idol. It turns into something that is, uh, you know, we look to satisfy something that it was never meant to satisfy. And so keeping the right object of worship front and center is sort of, in my mind, the key to life. Another common theme in your sermons, especially lately, is that we should not be relying on political parties for our salvation. If you can explain this a little bit and also. Um, if you could possibly counter Karl Marx as a communist political philosopher, I guess you would call him that. And I guess his maxim is that religion is the opiate of the masses. While I'm not a political philosopher, I think he was trying to say that relying on God and relying on the afterlife causes us to ignore issues of justice during the here and now on earth. In addition, I've heard it argued recently that our mission as Christians should be social justice. So how do you think that differs from regular justice and also is politics, justice, and or social justice really our mission as Christians? I know there's a lot in that question. So, uh, yeah, yeah, there's a lot in there, Brett. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plenty for me to step into as well, I'm sure. 
And so, yeah, this is a challenging one. And particularly in the day and age we're living in, where there is a lot of polarity. Obviously, I don't have to tell you that, you know, a lot of political polarity where there are opinions and convictions and they're strongly held. You know, there are forces at work, I think, to push people into these polarities as well. And I think it's the opportunity and the obligation, um, people of faith and particularly, you know, part of what uh, having Christ as a part of your life does is that it gives you a bigger picture of not viewing this world just by the limits of what's going on now, but seeing what's happening in light of eternity. And so I think in a way that allows us to kind of not get sucked in. Um, now, I am all for politics. I am, think uh, there's an incredible, we have the privilege here in America of being a part of our political system. You know, in most countries around the world, not most, but many countries around the world, that would be a incredible privilege they can only dream of. And we do have the opportunity to participate in that. And, you know, I do, and I commend that. And I guess the question can become, where does our hope lie? And if our hope lies ultimately in electing the right administration or getting the right people in positions of power, then there's something missing there. That's, uh, there's something that's missing there. And so I think it requires just a great deal of discernment. You know, I probably have figured out how to do it wrong more than I have figured out how to do it right. But um, it's a very easy thing to, I think, you know, get off track with. And so, yeah, so I try to, uh, I try to do whatever I can for our church to not be a, a part of that and get sucked into that polarization. And so we, uh, we do have as a part of our community, people of various political persuasions. And that's important to me. And I, you know, I have had to work hard to uh, try my best to keep that balance because the idea is that if, if having Jesus in your life is not able to take people who have um, him in common and not unite them because of politics, then something's off. And so that's challenging to do. And yet it's been, it's been fun to kind of work through that. Absolutely. I believe it was famed Pastor Rick Warren who said that if we are looking for a perfect church, none of us would qualify. Why is that an important concept? There is just the reality of um, what expectations do you uh, do people bring in when they're looking at a church, you know, and it's a very easy thing to look at and just say, man, this is wrong and that's wrong and uh, point out all the flaws. And they're there. I love our church. I love the community. I find it, I think it's an incredible place and I feel privileged to be pastor at this place. But the reality is that the time comes in, you know, particularly, like I said, being a relationally focused church, that means we're, we're kind of trying to, you know, get to a somewhat deeper level with each other. And that means at some point, there's going to be a person who is probably going to offend you, you know, say something that you don't like, or, you know, whether it's, on purpose or not, you know, that's kind of where the um, rubber meets the road, so to speak. You know, what do you do then? You know, how do we take out those tools of faith and practice forgiveness and, uh, you know, ask for forgiveness and offer that and come back together? So it can get messy at times. It definitely does at times, but it's a beautiful thing because on the other side of that, there's typically, you know, a deeper level of uh, connection and relationship. 
So I have one more kind of uh, long form question to ask you. Then I have a series of uh, real short questions, uh, short answers I want to find out. So um, I guess over the past couple of months, you've been preaching about the book of Revelation. Why is that an essential book of the Bible? And what led you to focus on it as a sermon series? <laughs> oh, man, you're getting right into this here. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Brett. I appreciate that. Well, yeah, it's one of those, uh, it's actually one of those books that I kind of never actually thought I would uh, actually preach through. And it's been so much fun. I've had a great time with it. It's something I've had to wrestle with. And I think it's highly relevant. So I will say that uh, there are a few different ways of looking at the book of Revelation. My focus has been on what did this book mean to the people who were reading it first in first century Asia Minor? How did these words relate to them and the message of it relate to them? And then we can look at what it means to us. And there's some fascinating narratives in there, storylines about power structures and politics and um, you know weakness and strength. I think there's some gold there. It does take some mining. We are up to, I think, uh, this coming Sunday, we'll be up to Revelation chapters 13 and 14. I think it's been a good ride. I was a little bit going into it with fear and trepidation, because if you're familiar at all with the book, there is some wild scenes in it and things that almost seem like crazy. It's written in a very unique style, falls into the apocalyptic literature genre. That can be a very scary thing to work through. So Thank God our church, I think, I don't know, Brett, you can tell me, but they've been, uh, they've been good going along for this ride. And I think, uh, you know, wrestling through it and seeing what the message is. Absolutely. No, I have a series of much easier questions now. What is your favorite translation of the Bible? The ESV is the one that I turn to the most, um, English Standard Version. I also, uh, for just reading, I like the, um, the New Living Translation, the NIV. I'll read the Greek, I'll read the Hebrew, I'll read three or four translations, depending on if I'm studying or if I'm just looking at something just for devotional purposes. Um, sometimes I love to just read the Message Bible, which is a paraphrase, not a Bible, but um, I try to use a, a bunch of different versions. Now, do you read Greek and Hebrew? I can read it, yes. Okay. Um, I studied it, and I'm not fluent in it, but I can read it and okay. work through it. Now, who is your favorite Christian author? Probably would say uh, Eugene Peterson. Who is your favorite secular author? I'm having a hard time remembering his name, but uh, he writes a lot of books. Tom Clancy? Grisham? I like Tom Clancy, but I can't say him. Okay. Uh, I like Grisham, but I can't say him. It's not who I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of the guy who uh, wrote, um, oh gosh, I've got the book right upstairs. I have to go get it. Right, we'll pass that. What is your favorite worship song? What is that song, Strength Will Rise When You Wait Upon the Lord? The Wait Upon the Lord. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah. I think we need Adam. Okay. Uh, yep. Yep. What is your favorite non-worship song? Oh man, I've got a lot of them. My favorite non-worship song, obscure song by the rock group. Yes, I I was I went through a phase where I was really into classical rock, and there's like a ten minute epic called "And You and I" from the not from the Fragile album, but from Close to the Edge by Yes, back from the seventies. Oh, the seventies, not the eighties. 70s. Wow. I th okay. That's interesting. I know that 80s is your favorite uh, decade to preach about. So uh, <laughs> what is your favorite Christian movie? I would have to say Chariots of Fire. What is your favorite secular movie? Um, Lord of the Rings. Any of them. Right. Oh, actually, let me adjust that. No. Um, breaking Away. This is the last question I'm going to ask. 
Um, so this is more of a long-form question. Where is God leading you and leading Lakeview Community Church in the next decade and beyond? You know, we will this summer be moving into a new facility, starting a new chapter, and really intentionally trying to just uh, be Lakeview Community Church, you know, and, and part of this is coming back together and reaching out to our community, uh, being present and uh, doing whatever we can to be a positive presence in this community. So we're just really looking forward to that. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, Pastor Brian, it's been a great conversation. I really appreciated you coming on to the Hudson Valley Uncensored, this uh, new podcast we have. And it's really been just wonderful talking to you and learning a little bit about your role in the community and your role with Lakeview Community Church. Is there anything you'd like to add? Uh, Well, I just want to say thank you, Brad. It's been an honor to be a part of this and uh, thank you for the conversation and um, really uh, excited to see how this podcast goes. Great. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. Thank you.